everybody. Welcome to Bone to Pick. I'm Michael Davis, and I am extremely honored to have the opportunity to sit down with our Artist of the Month, one of the greatest orchestral trombone players of all time, one of the great trombonists of all time, Mr. Ralph Sauer. Uh, Ralph was the principal trombonist of the Los Angeles Philharmonic for 32 years. He's an internationally acclaimed soloist, a distinguished educator. Uh, he's a founding member of the Summit Brass. On a personal note, I'm uh, extremely grateful that Ralph was willing to lend his talents to one of my projects, the Brass Nation CD, uh, many years back now. Um, and I'm also very grateful that he took time out of his busy schedule this week to be with us. So, Ralph, thank you so much for uh, spending some time with us my today. My pleasure, Mike. And uh, I want to just give a, a, a quick shout out to uh, the great Joe Alessi. Uh, Ralph is working uh, with the New York Philharmonic this week here in New York and staying at Joe's house where we are right now. And Joe was kind enough to let us uh, shoot this interview here uh, today. So thank you very much, Joe, for uh, allowing us into your beautiful home. Um, I'd like to kind of just jump in and start from your early years and your memories of uh, growing up in Philadelphia. And maybe uh, what are some of the things that made you gravitate to the trombone and, and mm -hmm. decide to make uh, music your life's work? Mm -hmm. Well, I started in elementary school, like most of the kids, and uh, with a very, very wonderful man who uh, Joseph Doran was his name, and he kept everyone interested in, in playing. And by the time I was perhaps 13 or 14, he realized he couldn't go much further with me. And he was instrumental in uh, getting me with Robert Harper, who was bass trombone in the Philadelphia Orchestra. Mm -hmm. So I started with him, I think, around age 14. And uh, shortly thereafter, got in the Philadelphia Youth Orchestra. And that was the big revelation for me that oh, this is, I think, what I want to do. Mm. And I even remember the piece that I made that decision. It was Sibelius Second, mm. and you know, this wonderful brass writing, especially course, at the yeah. end. It was just so uplifting that I, this is what I want to do. So, unlike a lot of kids today, I knew where I was going at, at a very early age. So, and I just kept on that path. And. Um, my last two years of high school were in Syracuse, New York. My father was transferred up there, and then I was lucky enough to study with Emory Remington um, when I was still in high school on Saturday mornings. And, and I kept, went to Eastman as a logical extension of that. So, mm -hmm, of course. So that was, that was my educational background. Mm -hmm. Must have been a great opportunity to hear the, the Philadelphia Orchestra at that time, especially it seemed to be at its... Right. its uh, Apex. Right. And um, in addition to Harper, the uh, first trombone way back was uh, Gusikoff, who had this un unbelievable sound. Mm -hmm. And then Henry Smith came in, who was you know, just a wonderful, wonderful player. Uh, and yeah. then the Rochester Philharmonic had wonderful trombones, too. Mm -hmm. Of course. And I, I would just say in passing that something that's very unusual is that neither of my teachers ever played a note for me in a lesson. Wow. And I'm not sure whether that was a good thing or a bad thing, but it did enable me to kind of learn and produce a sound that I had in my head rather than trying to imitate a teacher. Mm -hmm. And uh, of course, I had a lot of influence from listening to other players, but uh, I thought that was kind of unique, probably, that, uh, that neither teacher ever illustrated one point in the lesson. Mm. I, was th I think you're right. It probably kind of gives some space in your own playing in your own head in terms of how you want your sound to be shaped. Mm -hmm. It gives that opportunity to, to happen. That's very cool. Um, well, that leads me into the 
one of the things I really wanted to uh, talk to you a lot about in this interview, and, and, and you've already touched on uh, Emory Remington. And, and I should say, for those of you, obviously, players of our generation, we certainly know who the great Emory Remington is. But a lot of times when I go out and do clinics and master classes myself these days, uh, a, a lot of people uh, aren't as aware of him as I think he deserves to be. He's certainly, for my money, he's probably the greatest brass teacher of all time, certainly the greatest trombone teacher or, or among the greatest. And he taught at the Eastman School for over 50 years and, and turned out such a, a legacy of great trombonists from all the way, of course, from Ralph Sauer to uh, Bill Reichenbach and Jim Pugh and Steve Witzer and Scott Hartman. And, and I mean, there's just... In the generation before that, Gordon Pulis and exactly. Van Haney. And yes, yes. Very people. important to, yeah. to mention them as well. Um, but Ralph, maybe you could talk about... Um, um, your experience being at Eastman, what that was like in terms of the school, and then also, you know, how uh, your experience with Emory Remington was and how he shaped you as a player. And also, I would imagine he had an impact on you as in the future of becoming a teacher as well. Yes, um, I'm trying to write a book now. Mm. And one of the chapters is going to be about my experiences with Mr. Remington. And I can't write anything down at this point because I, I can't answer the question. I'm not quite sure what happened there. It was an osmosis type of teaching. I don't remember anything specific that he said, you know, like put your tongue here or do this or do that. He just sang in your lessons and somehow by osmosis it came over and you, and you played. So my chapter on him is going to be very small <laughs> uh, because there, there, there was nothing really to tell except Somehow he allowed you to learn, mm -hmm. and this magic happened. And I, I try to do that sometimes, but I'm just not the type to say, uh, well, that was very good, but if you, if you tongue a little bit more like this, it might help. I mean, I can't resist doing that. Mm -hmm. While he would just, he would say, well, no, no, more like this, ta da 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 And, oh, so it was an osmosis kind of teaching. And he was just the, the greatest man ever. He was everybody's grandpa. And uh, he was just an amazing person on a, on a personal level. But as far as his teaching, it was vague in a way, but you, you absorbed it. Mm -hmm. That's quite interesting because our, our good friend, Bill Reichenbach, who I consider one of the great trombone players of all time, said basically the exact thing you just said. He said, you know, I got there and he would sing a lot in lessons, and I just trusted that it was going to work out, and obviously it did for Bill mm. and, and yourself, of course. And when he stopped singing for a measure or two, it didn't work so well. <laughs> <laughs> and when I'm playing well, I hear him, because he always sat there, and, and the students sat here. Okay. I hear him singing, mm. and I'm playing well. As soon as I stop listening to him singing, the playing is not as good. Mm. <laughs> That's great. Well, that shows the power of singing, I think, and, and, and that quality within your playing, having that, that, that kind of vocal idea. Um, you know, it should also be noted, nowadays, the trombone choir is such a prevalent thing in, in all the major music programs around the country and around the world, and it's such an amazing sound, and I've written a lot of things for the trombone choir, and I love it, and, you know, I think you were a big part of that, uh, the movement that he started having the trombone choir. What was that like in terms of having that ensemble oh, with him? When you all of a sudden have 25 trombone players standing there and playing together, that was a real revelation. And that actually got me started in arranging too, because mm. he encouraged the students to write arrangements for the group. Mm -hmm. And so that started that whole part of my career. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, it's really an amazing, he, he, he was a very uh, important figure, you know, in terms of brass uh, pedagogy and, and, and shaping what was, what was to come, uh, you know, decade for decades, really. Mm -hmm. So, uh, well, Andy, let's talk a little bit about, uh, well, I know a lot of you may know there's uh, all kinds of uh, stories that float around about your exit from Eastman, but we could talk about that, but uh, I, think, I think you put it best. Uh, yeah, whatever the, how did you say it? The, uh... Well, I just said whenever you have a choice between the facts and the legend, you always go with the legend. So <laughs> whatever you've heard is true. Okay, so we'll leave your exit to the, uh, the legend and whatever you've heard is true. Um, you went into the Army for, uh, it sounded, I, like, I like that you described it as two years, seven months, and five days. So uh, yeah, maybe were... not the best two years, seven months, five days of your life. Well, but... I had a couple of good job offers, and it was the height of the Vietnam War, mm -hmm. and... Uh, rather than be drafted, uh, I signed up for the Army Band. Mm -hmm. And I was a little bit bitter about having to do that, and interrupt a career and sure. not take a couple of jobs. And uh, so I wasn't the happiest soldier, but, uh, <laughs> and I made life miserable. I'm sorry to say for some of those people, <laughs> I apologize. Uh, but I, I did get out at a time when there were, I think, seven or eight openings in orchestras. Mm. So it was a good time to get out of the Army uh, because the following year uh, there were no openings for trombone and who knows what I would have been, would have been doing. Mm -hmm. so. And, and so speaking of that, that, that led you to the job in Toronto? Toronto, in Toronto Symphony. Yes. Maybe you could share some of your memories of being there. I think you were there for six years? Yes. yes. And also, in addition to being in the orchestra, you were working uh, with the CBC a little bit, which is kind of a precursor to what would happen to you in Los Angeles years mm -hmm. later. And I believe you also did some teaching at University of Toronto. Yes. Maybe you could share your yes. whole Toronto experience with us. Well, um, I was hired by Seiji Ozawa. His last year there was my first year. And you know, the other unique thing about that job is the first six weeks of every season was opera. They had, mm. did not have a separate opera orchestra at that time. And I think one of the reasons I got the job is because at the audition, there were quite a few opera excerpts asked. And at that time, there were no lists sent out. You were expected to play whatever they put on the stand. Mm. And I knew all those opera excerpts from studying with Harper. Mm. And uh, I think some of the other major players who were in contention for that job probably didn't do so well on the opera excerpts. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So here was a, you know, a young kid coming out of uh, college with no real prior experience who could play all this stuff. And I think that's why he, he just decided, well, I'll take a chance. Mm -hmm. And uh, it worked out. Yeah, yeah. And, but it was great for me because I was learning the repertoire and uh, had a, a nice section to work with. And it was a great learning experience. I also got to, to um, hang out with Gordon Pulis mm -hmm. for a while. Because mm -hmm. he was uh, in the area. He played the first couple of months for me because I couldn't get out of the Army in time. So uh, I finally got to hang out with my hero. And I tell you, the first rehearsal, we needed four trombones uh, on the pieces we were playing. And the first rehearsal, my first professional job, I'm playing first trombone and Gordon Pulis is playing third trombone. <laughs> Talk about it's an experience. Right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a great story. Wow. Fantastic. And at that time, I think Toronto, you know, is still a, a big center, of course, but uh, at that time, there seemed to be a lot of recording work going on as well. It must have been right. uh, quite the, a bit of the CBC. The, the union was very tight there against imports, mm. and there was a two-year waiting period to do any kind of union work. 
Oh, interesting. So I didn't do anything for the first two years uh, outside the orchestra, unless the orchestra was hired for a specific date. So, but eventually I started doing more, more varied stuff. Uh, they did a lot of contemporary music um, concerts, and uh, we did ballet occasionally. So I really got a good education there. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and then when the LA thing opened up, I just I'd never been to California before, and just came out and you know decided this is maybe where I need to be uh -huh. rather than Toronto. Yeah, well, let's talk about that because that's obviously. Uh, everybody associates you so strongly with your, your years in, in Los Angeles. You were appointed principal uh, trombone by Zubin Mehta in 1974. Yes. Um, can you talk a little bit about, I have several questions I want to ask you about the orchestra and the, and the folks that you worked with there, um, but in particular, just take us through those first couple of years there and maybe also the audition process. I'm curious as to how it might compare to the auditions that take place now. Mm -hmm. um, they had an East Coast audition and a West Coast audition back mm -hmm. then. And uh, I remember coming to Carnegie Hall and uh, playing in the recital hall. And uh, we had a, a round of solo playing and then some excerpts. And uh, again, there was no list. We were expected to play whatever they put up. And uh, so I won the East Coast round and then was invited to come to play with the orchestra. And they had two other finalists, I think, from the West Coast uh, auditions. So I came in and uh, they made me play the concert that night without a rehearsal, Mozart Requiem. And uh, I played the second part. He actually wanted me to play the first part and then switch to the, the solo. And uh -huh. I said, no way. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I played the Mozart Requiem and then uh, they decided they would listen to the other guys. A month goes by, I don't hear anything. They said, we want you to come back again. So I came back again, and uh, I was a day early, and I listened to a children's concert out in the hall. And I heard that the trombones were making a lot more, let's say, a more, a more brilliant tone than I was used to. Mm -hmm. So I'm figuring, this is, I better brighten it, brighten it up a little bit if I mm -hmm. want to get in this group. Mm -hmm. So the next day, we started rehearsals on uh, Bruckner 8, which was my audition piece. So I put my little bit smaller mouthpiece. I was playing on a Schilke 51, but I had a, uh, a Remington underpart made for my rim, mm -hmm. which was, gave a lot more brilliant tone. Mm -hmm. So I put that mouthpiece in. I played the first part of the rehearsal, and uh, he calls me in at the break, and he says, well, it sounds very good, but it's too bright. <laughs> and so I, I figured, well, this is not going to be a problem here. And I said, okay, I'll fix it. And I could see him kind of rolling his eyes. Yeah, sure, he's going to fix his sound you mm -hmm. know, in, in two minutes. So I went back, put my regular mouthpiece in, played the rest of the rehearsal. He calls me in after the, after the rehearsal. He says, how did you do that? This is exactly the sound I want. So I knew I had him at that point. Uh -huh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but he, he was a, a, a great, he still is a great conductor to play for. He's very demanding for the brass and in a good way. He has a good ear for, for, for brass. Mm. He knows what he wants. Mm -hmm. You know, that's, for all of us, actually, that's a, a tremendous lesson. Like, first of all, you're listening to what's going on. You, you've decided to make an adjustment, and then you have the wherewithal to make the adjustment back that whatever you need to do. To me, that's, that's what being a musician is, and, sure. and listening and trying to uh, adapt. So clearly, you know, you're, the, the success you've had throughout your career is, is 
you know, you had that early on, and uh, we're approaching things in that way. It's it's, diff it's a mistake to to try to second guess what you think they want, because mm -hmm. maybe they don't want what they've had before. Mm -hmm. Maybe they want to change, and if you go in and start trying to play a different game than than your game. I mean, I could have made a huge mistake doing that. Mm -hmm. Let's say if I had forgotten my other mouthpiece, mm -hmm. I probably wouldn't have gotten the job. Mm. But because I tried to second guess what I thought they wanted. Mm -hmm. That's a great point. Really good point. Um, back when I was a student at Eastman, we were, I had a brass quintet that we played in, and our, our first trumpet player, a gentleman named Kevin Brown, was a wonderful player, and he was a student of Tom Stevens, who was, of course, the principal trumpet in L.A. for, for many years. And, we got to go out to L.A. for a chamber music competition, and, and Tom was generous enough to get us some seats to, to hear you guys play. And we got to hear you play Petrushka, I think it was in 1982. And you guys were so nice to us, we, we came back and got to meet you. And uh, um, I, of course, I gravitated to your playing and was so you know, uh, focused on the trombones. But maybe you could talk a little bit about uh, what it was like. That brass section was so great. Uh, you know, of course, the trombone section was outstanding, but then you had Tom Stevens and Principal Trumpet. You had Roger Bobo. Such a great section. Maybe you could touch on some of your thoughts about that. Well, I think it was a very balanced section, and and the good part is we were all close friends mm. too. There was there was no friction in that way, and we never, I never had to sit down with Tom and try something. We just did it, and it, whatever little problems maybe had been there at the first rehearsal just automatically went away by the second rehearsal. We never, we never rehearsed or practiced anything together. There was that kind of flexibility. And he had a sound that was, it was compact, not, not this, not this, but compact enough that you could just get inside that sound and, and blend or, or whatever you had to do. And of course, Roger uh, on the bottom was a monster, monster player and we, we the, the trombone section, we played together for all those years and we're close friends. We went on vacations together, uh, all the low brass. So, I mean, it was just a wonderful experience. And I would say balance would be the best way I could describe that brass section. There wasn't, uh, wasn't anyone who seemed to dominate. It was a, a balanced idea that we could play out when we needed to, but we had the right balance, I think, with the rest of the orchestra. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I even as a college student and not, you know, having the wherewithal about what's going on in the orchestra. But I remember that being a very distinct thing about your section. Just it felt like everything was balanced and and there was strength everywhere when there mm -hmm. needed to be. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, quite a unique situation I think. Uh, and it was uh, it was such a pleasure. To we hear knew you. when to turn the turbos on, mm -hmm. but we also knew how to get out of the way. Mm -hmm. We just didn't play every forte loud. Right. 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 So these low brass vacations, was any beer drinking involved on any uh, of those? There were some adult beverages here ah, and there, okay. yes. yes. Okay. When you look back on 32 years, uh, uh, I can imagine you have lots of great memories. And, but are there a couple that stand out for you in terms of your own personal performance or recordings or just kind of favorite moments you might have uh, with the orchestra? Well, I think any first trombone player always looks forward to Mahler third. And... I did a lot of Mahler thirds, but with only two conductors, Zubin Mehta and Esapekka Solomon, and uh, got the chance to record it with both of them. So that, that always is an event for, for a trombone player. But I do know when I peaked, and it was in April of 1982. That's when Carlo Maria Giolini was music director, and we were doing 
Falstaff. Mm. And it was the first time he had conducted opera in something like 15 years because he just was fed up with the way opera companies were doing productions. And he was given carte blanche to do anything he wanted, as many rehearsals as he needed. And those performances, I think, were the pinnacle for wow. me. And it's been all downhill since then. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I think that's right around the time I heard you guys. And I, I remember having several recordings uh, back in the days when you bought LPs of, of, of him conducting with, the, I believe you guys were on Deutsche Grammophon in, in yes. the, during those years. Mm -hmm. um, and some amazing recordings uh, as well came out of that, uh, that time period. Um, this is just a separate issue altogether. How do you feel about the new hall that they have now? Um, I'm in the minority. Um, I played there for three years and I didn't like it. Okay. Um, the problem was where we were sitting, there was no reflective surface anywhere near us, especially behind us. It was open to this big old pit where they could lower the, the seats behind the orchestra into this pit mm. if, if they needed more space on stage. So it was like playing outdoors. Your sound just disappeared. Interesting. So I, I was not comfortable playing there. Mm. Um, most of the orchestra love it, mm. and I think the, the public likes it. So. Yeah. But I wasn't comfortable, and I don't think any of the trombones or the trumpets were really comfortable playing there. Mm. For those who don't know, this is the, the Disney, Disney Concert Hall designed by Frank Gehry, uh, yes. super famous architect, and, and visually from the outside it looks quite stunning. And mm -hmm. It has the Gehry trademarks to it. But... I remember when it was going up and all the steel was up and it was going like this, and uh, someone quipped, if we ever get the big earthquake, how are we going to know if it was damaged? <laughs> I mean, it was so contorted, the sh inside guts of that building. Yeah, I guess that's, that's part of his trademark. But, um, well, spending all those years in Los Angeles, um, I know it enabled you to do uh, you know, uh, other work in, in terms of soundtracks, motion picture soundtracks, uh, CDs and whatnot. Um, maybe you could talk about some of the other projects that you were involved in that you have some fond memories of. Well, I didn't do a lot of studio work. Um, I never hustled it, hustled for it, because there's a whole group of people, that's how they make their living. Mm. And I just felt a little strange about having a Philharmonic contract and going in and sitting there and maybe taking work from someone. I never turned down anything if, mm -hmm. if, they, if someone called me, but I never solicited uh, work. But I remember a lot of famous old films, John Williams stuff, Close Encounters, and Indiana Jones, Temple of Doom, and, mm -hmm. and those big blockbuster films. They were a lot of fun to work on. It was great to kind of hang out with a whole different segment of the trombone community. I got to play with George Roberts and, and uh, Lloyd Elliott and Dick yeah. Nash, and you know, so it, it was a great experience from that point of view, but it wasn't something that I did a lot of. The, uh, the other freelance work in town, there was just not a lot time sure. really to do it, and I just felt funny about doing it. Too. Mm -hmm. Well, that's actually, it's, it's great that you say that because I think, like you're saying, there is, you know, the, the highest level players in Los Angeles, as there are in New York, but uh, the, the, uh, the brass players in the studios in L.A. are second to none, and, and, uh, and I think you're absolutely right in a very, very uh, good way to approach it, I think, yeah. That's nicely said. Um, let's shift gears a little bit and talk about your, your solo career. Um, you've been active as a soloist worldwide for over 30 years now. And I've, just a quick story uh, that I experienced when I was uh, in high school and wanting to go to Eastman. And I, uh, of course, was playing on an 88H. And, and I picked up your Crystal Records recording, which we were trying to come up with the, uh, the title of. Um, and you had 
played so many great pieces on there. The Telemann always kind of struck me as, uh, but there was a picture of you on the back of the uh, LP in those days. And, you, and I remembered having my mom come in and try to take the picture of me with, I was trying to get the Ralph Sauer Hombacher <laughs> and like I had this shirt like you. And I, I remember it just had such an impact on me. And my mom was like, I kept getting mad at her. I was like, you know, no, that's not right. You know, <laughs> well, it's still not going to sound like Ralph either, by the way. And you're not going to look like it. But, uh, but anyway, uh, that aside, you've done some great recordings. And maybe you could just talk a little bit about your approach to solo playing and and how you know? Do you enjoy that type of playing? And and just kind of an overview of that part of your career. It's strange because I never wanted to be a soloist. I don't think I have the temperament to be a soloist. But mm -hmm. I made these recordings years ago, and as a result of those, uh, going around the world, I was invited to pl to play. So I, I was a very reluctant soloist. Okay. Uh, and but it's funny that that they did open a lot of doors for me. Um, way back, I went to a convention in Oslo over 30 years ago as a result of this recording. They wanted to have me over. And I got an invite back about two years ago and saw the same people again, and they still remembered those, those discs, which I had totally forgotten about, really. <laughs> so uh, my solo career, there is no solo career, because I never <laughs> wanted to be a soloist. I just kind of got dragged into okay. it. <laughs> Well, I, I have played a few solos. I did play the Sorotsky uh, Concerto at Eastman, and that was for the U.S. premiere of that. And that would have been 1965, I think. And then I played it again in Los Angeles with Meta, a couple of performances. And then not too long ago, I guess it was, well, it's probably 10 years ago by now, the Philharmonic commissioned a concerto by Augusta Reed Thomas okay. that uh, I did get a chance to premiere. Mm -hmm. So a, a few things, but, but nothing like Mr. Alessi. Okay. Uh, <laughs> well, there is nothing like Mr. Alessi, that's for sure. But I will say on behalf of the trombone community, we're glad you got dragged into be a, <laughs> being a reluctant soloist because you've done some amazing work with that. And uh, I know for me, it's it had a very major impact. In, uh, and I think I can speak for a lot of people in that regard. Um, let's talk a little bit about your, your teaching and, and your reputation as, as, as stellar in that as well. Um, I know you're, you're currently on the faculty at the Music Academy of the West in Santa Barbara, but you've also had uh, visiting professorships at Eastman School of Music as well as Arizona State uh, University. Um, maybe you could talk a little bit about your approach to teaching and I'd be interested if, if, if some of the Remington ideas have carried through in your approach and just kind of mm -hmm. a general mm -hmm. thought on that. Um, of course I try to um, incorporate Remington's teaching, but I can't do it in the way he did. Yeah. But uh, it's always a, uh, for me, a result kind of teaching rather than a method. I, I try not to say, here's the method, go home and practice, and we'll hope for the best. I like to try different methods, different ways of doing things, even if it's a lot different than the way I personally would do it, until we hear the result. If the mm. result, of, for, for instance, if the legato is now perfect, I don't care that you're not doing it my way. Mm -hmm. It's that's the way you do it. That's your way. So I've always been result-oriented rather than method-oriented. Um, I primarily, over the years, have only had some private students. That I've never had a position in, in Los Angeles. Uh, I did have the position in Toronto and had a, a, a regular class there of, of students. But it was primarily people coming in for coachings and things like that. And a 
few people would take lessons on a longer term basis. But I've always been more of a, a coach rather than a, someone to take lessons from who would guide you from book one to the end of the line. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, so. And I, we should mention that Christian Lindbergh, the great, one of the great uh, trombone solos of all time, uh, was a student of yours, so maybe you could share uh, thoughts about Christian when he was doing oh, some yeah. studying with you. Well, he he didn't uh, did, didn't need any uh, technical uh, assistance. <laughs> it was more, we we talked about interpretation and uh -huh. things like that, and and he he was already playing his uh, an unbelievable chartas and things like that yeah. uh, back then, and uh, we maintained a nice relationship over the years and. He's now reinvented himself as a conductor and is very successful doing that in addition to his playing. Yeah, yeah. He seems like one of those the dynamic energy that he has, not unlike Mr. Alessi, yeah. uh, in that uh, whatever he chose to do, he would be a success at it. But mm -hmm. uh, you know, thankfully for all of us, he, he chose a trombone. Um, one of the things that I've noticed that, about your career, which I think is really important for young people today, and, and, and that's kind of approaching things with an entrepreneurial mindset. And that doesn't necessarily mean starting a business or doing anything, it's just kind of being open to things that are outside our normal way of thinking in terms of, you know, if you want to be an orchestral player, of course you learn your excerpts, but, you know, maybe approaching things and adding some things to your, your arsenal, as it were. And I've always been impressed by what you've done in your career, and, and, and I'm wondering if you could just kind of touch on a few of the ventures that you've done, but in particular, you know, you were a member of the Summit Brass, a founding member, and that's gone on to become quite a quite a big thing. I'd be interested in that, and also, um, you know, you, the the two orchestral excerpt discs that you released, and I'm sure you didn't start off that way, but they've become industry standards, and and young players today still look to those as very important. And then, lastly, you and I have this in common, but you've developed a, a wonderful instrument with. Uh, the Shires Company and uh, the Ralph Sauer model trombone, which for those of you who haven't tried it, it's stunning, as are all of uh, Steve Shires' instruments. And um, you know the fact that you went into that venture, I, th I find that a very uh, healthy um, mindset in a way of approaching the music business as it is. So maybe you could just talk about those well, things. Well, it was primarily a, a way of keeping uh, the boredom out of the orchestral routine mm. that uh, it just kept you, kept you more more into things and, and fresher in, in, your, in your music making. Um, it was usually a, something I just fell into. It wasn't planned. Mm -hmm. um, we, they formed Summit Brass and they said, do you want to play? Sure. And we um, had one rehearsal and played our first concert tour and the rest is history. But <laughs> then we started making some recordings for a company that I won't mention who never paid any royalties and uh, in fact Doc Severinsen was on the first one and we mm. nobody ever saw a penny from that. Mm. So we decided well let's make our own rec recordings mm -hmm. and this was back when it was difficult to make recordings uh, not so easy as it is today where sure. anyone can make a world-class recording in their basement with the equipment that's available. So we formed our own record company and I got involved in that and in the manufacturing of, of the discs and um, I did all the liner notes and learned how to use a computer and PageMaker and Quark Express and Photoshop and so it was almost like a second career of uh, of doing all that. Again, I just fell into it. Yeah. And so that lasted for quite a while. And um, when when the airlines started breaking my trombones, um, I decided to try to get a 
an instrument that I could travel with, and this is when I went to Steve and Steve Shires and got the Screwbell instrument right. perfected. And uh, so again, I fell into that because of necessity. But I, I think maybe the larger point you're trying to make is that everyone, especially today, needs to be more flexible in, in their approach. They, they can't mm. just be so focused on one aspect of music that, uh, that they're going to need to do other things in music, probably out of necessity mm -hmm. in most cases, just to make a living. Mm -hmm. uh, while I had the luxury way back of being very focused on the orchestral career and w was able to, to just do that, I think young players today are making a mistake because they need to be more more flexible in their in their mm -hmm. playing. Mm -hmm. You know, it's an interesting thing because we started the interview and you were talking about um, uh, the listening as you were getting ready to take the audition and or taking the audition in Los Angeles. Seems to be a very similar mindset in terms of how you approach things outside of that. So that's obviously a part of your personality and your way of thinking that has uh, served you very well over the years. I think. Well, I mean, you you try to see a need for something and you fill that need. Mm -hmm. um, my current project of um, doing lots of arranging for trombone and piano is I'm trying to fill a gap in our repertoire. We have this huge hole uh, in the 18th, 19th century trom uh, literature for trombone. We have a lot of composers who wrote for the trombone. For instance, Wagner wrote great trombone parts in his operas, of but he never wrote a trombone solo. Mm -hmm. So I found these rather obscure piano pieces and turned them into trombone solos. So that's my, my goal now is to fill in the repertoire that's missing for us. Mm. And I've found all these fabulous pieces. And in fact, now it's, it's too late for me, but if I wanted to be a soloist, I would now have a repertoire that I would enjoy, <laughs> enjoy really yeah. enjoy playing. <laughs> well, that's great stuff. And it's good, that, uh, good for all of us that you're doing that. That's very cool. Um, Let's shift gears again, and maybe I'd like to get your impression on uh, kind of the state of the American orchestra and your feelings about it. There's so much, um, you know, there's there's so much variance in the whole thing. I've heard it said that uh, the three most solvent uh, and financially successful orchestras in the United States are the Boston Symphony, the Los Angeles Philharmonic, and the San Francisco Symphony. I don't know if that's completely accurate, but you know, that's based on a couple of different things. Obviously, Boston, they own all that real estate around the hall. That helps. L.A., San Francisco, I'm not sure. But maybe you could talk about that. And then on the other end of the spectrum, we're seeing things like the Great Orchestra in Minnesota having the difficulties they're having. Philadelphia's had problems recently. There's been other orchestras that are faced with a lot of challenges. And I'm just kind of getting your thoughts uh, as you look at it, what, what your feeling is about the state of affairs and where you see it possibly going in the future. Well, it was once said that uh, the Chicago Symphony was known for its brass, and the Philadelphia Orchestra was known for its strings, and the LA Philharmonic was known for its management. And <laughs> I think the problem with orchestras today is in management, hmm. uh, mismanagement in most cases. Uh -huh. uh, that uh, if we could just solve that problem, I think the orchestras would become healthy again. Mm -hmm. But there's no denying that the LA Philharmonic has been well managed over the years, and uh, they have a great income uh, stream from the Hollywood Bowl. Mm. That whatever we used to years ago, whatever we lost in the winter season on tours, and you know didn't even break even, they would make back at the bowl in the first couple of weeks, mm. and then have the uh, surplus. So the LA the Philharmonic owns the Hollywood Bowl then, or or yeah, the as far as I know, yeah, that they they. 
and they probably lease it from the county somehow, but right. uh, but they make every hot dog that's sold, I think they get it. Oh, wow, that's uh, great. That's so, fantastic. Wow. Yeah. That certainly explains a lot. That would be amazing. Uh, yeah. Revenue so there's 18,000 seats there. Yeah. And most of the of the weekend concerts are full. Mm -hmm. And the regular symphony concerts, of course, I haven't played there in seven or eight years now, but most of the symphony concerts on Tuesdays and Thursdays were at least half full. Mm -hmm. So they had a very good re revenue uh, stream from that. Yeah, sure. And they've had, I mean, even when I was with the Rolling Stones, we played the Hollywood Bowl. That's a, an important venue for sure. every level of uh, act. And, and of course, the Playboy Jazz Festival is there for years. So you can imagine the like you're saying, the revenue stream, but, um, well, do you see, do you see the orchestras surviving in the future? Obviously, I think the big, the big, uh, orchestras in the big, in the bigger metropolitan centers will, but, you know, we're talking about, uh, Rochester Philharmonic, Syracuse Symphony has changed in my hometown, San Jose, that's become the Silicon Valley, uh, symphony. I don't know the actual name of it now, but they're reforming and under player management, I suppose, mm -hmm. what's your thoughts on, well, I think approach. they're going to have have to reinvent themselves somehow mm -hmm. um, until the, we get enlightened management and boards of directors who uh, who know the value of a symphony orchestra for for a city. Um, one of the board of directors on a famous orchestra I've, I've heard was talking with uh, a famous conductor of that orchestra, and they were doing Tchaikovsky Six, with it, which ends with a slow movement and quite soft. And she said, uh, I enjoyed the symphony, but I did not like the encore. You know, that the board of directors really didn't, they had no clue right. about the Tchaikovsky Sixth Symphony. Right. So unless you can stop that whole insidio insidious uh, thing, um, orchestras are in trouble until they reinvent themselves. Yeah, well, and... and Sounds like educating the audience is, you know, starts right with board of directors members at, at, at times with a statement like that. Um, Ralph, well, I just, I, I really, really appreciate your time today. And I know you have a busy schedule this week with the New York Philharmonic, but um, as we close out today, I was wondering, and I always like to ask this because we have a lot of young viewers and I'd like for them to to have an opportunity to, to pick your brain is such a great thing for all of us. But um, as we close out, what, if you had one piece of advice for, a young man or woman out there who wants to become a great orchestral trombone player like you've done, um, what, what, what piece of advice would you give them? One word, listen. Mm. Uh, and all that implies mm -hmm. that, of course, now you have to be more flexible in, in, in your approach to the instrument and the styles of playing that you need to be familiar with. But uh, listening is the key. Listen to the right players. Listen and don't talk so much. <laughs> <laughs> that was a piece of advice Gordon Pulis gave me way back. He said, uh, keep your mouth shut and lead by example. Mm. And I've tried to do that in, in most cases and uh, had some success with it. But listening is the key. Yeah. Listening to yourself, listening to other people, and uh, listening to different styles and amalgamating them into your personal approach. That's an amazing piece of advice, and I think you've you've taken that to the highest order. And in, 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 you know all the business things that you've been involved as in, you're you're listening. That's that's really what it breaks down to. So, thank you for that piece of advice, and uh, thank you, Ralph. I really appreciate again your time, and I uh, hope you had a great stay here in New York and in Joe's beautiful house. And uh, um, 
we really look forward to all of your future endeavors, and uh, we thank you once more for, for being with us on Bone to Pick today. Thank you, Mike. All right, we'll, we'll catch you next time on Bone to Pick. Thanks for being with us.